Hallelujah. Praise you, O Lord. We worship you, Lord, in light of the complete work of the incarnation. At the door of the empty tomb, we see a dividing line. And we recognize with the scriptures proclaiming to us these truths today and the songs that we've sung heralding the same, that in that tomb remains our sin. In that tomb remains the plans of the enemy, death itself. They have been defeated. Yet outside that tomb, in resurrection life, is our Lord and Savior and all who are in Him. All who by union with Him, by His manifest salvation, awakening their souls to regeneration, celebrate their eternal life, are promised a forever existence worshiping you. And so in anticipation of the full realizing of the power of the gospel to redeem and to transform not just our life here, but life eternal, we worship you and praise you this morning, Almighty God. Only the God of the universe could have planned and executed such a glorious purchase price at the perfect time and applied it to our souls for the redeemed who gather among us this day. And so we praise you. Now as we turn to your word, I pray, Spirit, that you would awaken our hearts to the truths of what was happening when Christ died and was raised and then proclaimed to the church for all ages, go and tell this news. I pray that you would awaken us, stir us, strengthen our faith by the proclamation of your word today. Move us towards obedience and faith among nations. And move us to call all nations to obey. To call them first to repent and to believe. And secondly, to walk in a manner worthy of their call. I pray that you would do this for your glory and namesake, O God. That we might be better equipped to represent you beyond this place. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a gracious opportunity and glorious gift it is today to open the Scriptures and behold the Lord revealed to our hearts today. I would encourage you to turn in your Scriptures to Matthew 28 under a title this morning for our message, Jesus' Last Words. We will conclude, Lord willing, our series in Matthew, marching through the book, these many years. Today and next week, I trust, with an overview message on the book of Matthew. But we will conclude Matthew's text today with verses 16 through 20 as we consider what's come to be known as the Great Commission. These are, in Matthew's account, Jesus' last words. The aim of this morning's sermon is that through processing Jesus' last words, we may be stirred to bold obedience. Through processing these last words, the great commission of Jesus, meditating on them and and considering their weight, we may be stirred to boldly obey ourselves, to go and tell, as it were, that commandment given to the Marys upon their realization of their Lord resurrected. So let us stand together out of reverence for the Scriptures this morning with your Bible open to Matthew 28. Again, verses 16 through 20. And listen to the holy word of God declared in these verses this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The escalating ministry of Jesus Christ has been building to a crescendo of glorious power and reach as this Gospel of Matthew closes. There's been an escalation. There's been an advancement, like a musical score that starts with a few notes that captures your attention, draws you in, and leads you with a sense of suspense and anticipation until it's full-flowering crescendo. Last night we were in our town which celebrates its anniversary or whatever once a year. And there was a fireworks display. You're familiar with these, I'm sure. If not all of us, most of us have seen one or two fireworks displays this season as we also celebrate the independence of America around this time. So typically a firework display begins with a loud retort or a single shell and the sky is full with this blaze and one by one the shells are ignited and the sky is glowing. But we know if we have any experience with these type of things that they save the best for last. And so as this symphony of light reaches its crescendo, the full flowering of the power and weight of the moment explodes in the grand finale. That's an illustration to give us an idea of the anticipation and suspense that's been building towards crescendo even in the gospel itself. And so these words that we've read today are something of the capstone, the crowning achievement of Christ's work and ministry on this earth. And they come with the command to now go, take the weight of the realized, resurrected, crucified, and soon ascended Christ and His message and His truth, the reality of Christ in flesh, God in man, God become man in our experience in this life, take it, go, and proclaim this grand finale to the far corners of the earth. There is summaries of the weight of the gospel that are given by apostolic expansion, if you will. Paul is famous for these. He has summarized the triumphant thrust of the ongoing influence of the incarnation in several places throughout his epistles. One classic instance can be found in Ephesians 1, 19-23. Here he, Paul, illuminates the greatness of the power of God realized by those who believe by pointing to Christ in whom we see the same power was evident. That is, listen to what Paul says about the power of God evident in the work of Christ. These closing chapters of Matthew summarized in these glorious words. Paul says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul uses that word all a lot. The word is used three times in our text today. All authority, all nations, all things I have commanded you. 
the sense of Scripture is that it's an absolutely comprehensive authority claim that God makes when He plants His flag of redemption in the soil of earth, in the incarnation of His Son, and says, everything is mine. This is not to say everything wasn't His before He planted the flag with Christ coming on earth. In one sense, it absolutely was. He created it all in the first place. But now Christ, in the fullness of time, has come, and in so doing, He has laid claim not only to all this earth as judge, but He's laid claim to your heart and to mine, if you know Him today, as our Savior. So He is Lord of creation, and He is Lord of every redeemed heart in this room today. Every believer who has lived and will come in to the storehouses of glory are Christ's. He owns them. After all, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Him. Other cross-references in the Scriptures, including the book of Matthew, reinforce the importance, the importance of this occasion as well. And notice, we've learned this recently, let's consider the weight of the text. Notice even the setting, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Where? The setting was Galilee. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We find them in a particular region, Galilee, a particular geographic feature, a mountain. This is profound as well. After all, this was not the first first event to take place on a mountain in Matthew's gospel. It was prophesied of old that the Messiah would announce himself and do certain things, manifest himself, reveal himself on a mountain as it were, We find this in the book of Isaiah, which we'll touch on another passage in our message today. But we also recall the very great, or the very first great discourse in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Where was it delivered? The name tells us as much, on a mountain. Chapters 5 through 7, Christ proclaims, if you will, the constitution of the kingdom of God. I am king, and this is the this is the order of my realm, and he did so on a high place, on a mountain. Later in chapter 17, we see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here, Peter, James, and John, the the veil that separated them from the divinity of Christ is pushed aside for a moment, and they see the refulgence, the shining. They see the magnified glory of God shining as the sun from the face of their Messiah. And boy, is that an awakening. Where does this happen? It happens on what we've come to call the Mount of Transfiguration. Another high point of revelation in the gospel. This Messiah is also God. And so we see this moment recorded in Matthew's account. Uh, Here Jesus indicates the weight of this event, that is the Mount of Transfiguration, will not be fully manifest until after His resurrection. Do you remember what He says, John 17, 9? Don't tell anyone until after I am raised from the dead. And now in chapter 28, he has been raised from the dead, and from a mountain, he says, go tell everyone. And so we see these moments are significant in the text. Rewinding a bit in chapter 15, Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecy and manifests his glory in feeding thousands, thousands from the top of that mountain. Miraculous things took place, healings and the bread broken and fed to feed the masses. 
In chapter 24 and 25, there's the Olivet Discourse. Why do we call it that? Because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives as He proclaims His authority to judge covenant-breaking Jerusalem when God will intervene in their own destruction. And He prophesies as much in these two chapters. We've remarked how this event proves to be something of an oracle because in the future, it's proclaimed that He will divide not just the unfaithful Jerusalem because, or, uh, he will not, or He will bring judgment not just on unfaithful Jerusalem for the covenant breaking, but one day He will separate the sheep from the goats for all time. And so on this mountain, as He is seated there, Christ reveals His glory. We also recall in this event, Christ on the Mount of Olives, that this is the very location that the departing glory of God rested after being removed from the temple. A symbolic event in Ezekiel in chapters 10 and 11 was manifest when the visible, manifest, Shekinah glory of God moved from the place of God's residing there among them eastward to the Mount of Olives. Jesus takes this same path as He visits the temple, remarks that not one stone will be left another, and then moves eastward, sits on the Mount of Olives, as He is the glory of God, as it were, and then proclaims judgment because of the abandoning of Himself by, these, by this people who have broken covenant with Him. That leads us to today. As Christ again ascends the mountain with His disciples, He gives them instructions to go and to tell. But this is not the last mountain upon which Christ will appear. We have one more account to look forward to in Luke 24, verse 50, Acts 1, 6 through 12. We see that again on the Mount of Olives, Christ ascends, and not just ascends to the top of the mountain, but ascends further still to the right hand of the Father. And there He is seated today, brothers and sisters in Christ, at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over His now inaugurated and evident kingdom. So we observe in the context of the Gospel of Matthew that even the setting of Jesus' last words magnifies the moment. Jesus' last words come as a crescendo, a finale. Let us consider further the magnitude of Jesus' last words in these three apparent phrases, or these, that is apparent in these three phrases that use the all-inclusive term, all. Number one, let's consider the magnitude of Jesus' last words in light of the phrase, all authority. Secondly, let us consider the weight of His last words as we see that all nations are listed in this text as the peoples that are to be reached. And finally, we are to bring them again all that He has commanded. Back to our text today, consider verses, the first few verses, 16 through 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Pausing there. The significance of Christ's total and complete authority now undergirds and is the ground for several things. The proclamation, the bold, authoritative, unflinching, comprehensive, all-nations-relevant proclamation of the gospel. This is a reality yet today. It's a message that is true and powerful and effective and commissioned and legitimate yet today because 
Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. So if he has decreed that his message go, the clarion call of our sovereign gives us as his agents the duty, the delegated authority to take his message of truth to the nations. It is binding on the hearer for everyone who comes in contact with the message of Christ come in time. Therefore, repent and believe. But secondly, we see authority is linked to more in the text. Authority is linked to the worship of those who follow him, his disciples. More on that in a moment. Thirdly, or there's another uh, um, aspect, context, or there's another contextual note that undergirds this message of authority in the text. We mentioned this before. Let me touch on it again briefly. This commission comes on the heels of another commission. In other words, there are two messages that are being launched by two different authorities to go into all the world, as it were. The first message is recorded in verses 11 through 14, 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. They tell the chief priests all that had taken place. They just witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 12, when they had assembled, okay, the powers that be, with the elders taking counsel, they gave us a, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, listen to their message. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That was a commission. Who is the authority and what was the message? The authority was, verse 62, the chief priests... And there was a certain conspiracy with the uh, Pilate, as it were, or at least his soldiers and the Pharisees. So the rulers of the day, civil and religious, they got together with this Antichrist plan. And they gave their foot soldiers specific instructions. They said, lie about the Christ. Tell this Antichrist story that he didn't really raise from the dead. But some conspiracy happened, the disciples stole his body, and everything you hear from these crackpots is a lie. So that story goes forth, or that commission is given by this false authority. Immediately after, Christ calls his 11 disciples, fewer in number indeed. He does not bribe them with any money. He doesn't give them a salacious rumor. There isn't the same draw on the motives of the flesh to spread this gospel. In fact, he's told them numerous times already that this message will come at the cost of your own life. This is not something that will be profitable to you. Hey, spread this rumor, and we will give you all the money you need. Be our propagandists, and we will employ you handsomely. That's the message of the world. The message of the gospel is, this will cost you, likely, relationships in your own family, because the word comes as a sword to divide and even bring antinomy and hatred sometimes, God forbid, but it's nevertheless often the case in His providence that family members disown one another because one has said, I serve Christ alone, and the unbelieving family member cannot abide their fellowship anymore. And so at the cost of broken families and relationships, go forth with this message. At the cost of bearing the reproach that I bear, Christ says, taking up your cross and following me, take this message. Lay down your life, take up your cross, and bring this message. Well, on the face of it, it would seem that this is a powerful disincentive. We've remarked before 
how oftentimes in, providen- in, in the history of God's providence, He will, as it were, put water on the sacrifice so that when He answers with fire from heaven and it consumes the water in the sacrifice also, it is all the more evident that it is His power that advances the gospel, not money, personality, influence, fame, or anything of the flesh. And so we have it. The means of the flesh versus the means of the Spirit. Two commissions go forth into all the world. The one says, tell them that the disciples stole the body. The other says, tell them that He is resurrected, ruling, and reigning, and salvation is in His right hand. These two authority claims, they went forth, and we have 2,000 years of history to look at to see the track record of their success. Which authority prevailed? Well, I know no churches in Cross Lake that are the first church of Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. I know no churches, even in the cities, where everyone gathers to celebrate that the disciples stole the body. But all over this globe, as we saw last week, from Malawi to Minnesota, there are churches that gather every week to celebrate Jesus Christ bodily raised from the dead. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And so when we go and bring that message, it has two millennia, and as many years as He tarries, of staying power. Two millennia of staying power. Praise His name. Uh, Secondly, under all authority, there's this link to Galilee. You might ask yourself, I floated the question, Why do they gather in Galilee? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Well, this has historical prophetic significance. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9. It occurs to me that as you look at these famous messianic verses, you're familiar with them at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 It's as if the book of Matthew could be structured. You could derive an outline of the book of Matthew around these very verses. We'll notice this by one or two examples later, but just for your further study and consideration, behold these verses, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The term nations there in the Greek, as it's quoted in the New Testament, is the same, or, um, or get, of, is Gentiles. So uh, there's times where you'll find in your translation Galilee of the Gentiles, the same word ethnos in the Greek, or Galilee of the nations is referenced there. So that's significant. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." Interesting prophetic language, but basically the picture there is the experience of war and defeat and oppression will be reversed to an experience of victory and triumph. And listen as he continues, verse 6, these are the familiar words. For to us a child is born, 
Uh, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's the message of Isaiah 9, 1-7. through When you see the Messiah come in the future who reverses the fortunes of Galilee, you will know that the Messiah is forever established on the throne of David, that justice and righteousness will continue from that time forth forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. People despise Christ for ministering in Galilee. Why would someone who claimed to be so historically and socially important Spend most of his time in the, among the outcasts, those who had stereotypes against them, the weak and lowly in the northern regions, not where the elite gathered in the city, in the urban centers, and where the influence was you know, centralized through the synagogue and through the court and through the governments. Why did Jesus go out to these hinterland regions, spend most of his time there, and in fact, in the course of Matthew's account, give his last words there? It's because... He was fulfilling these words in Isaiah 9. That one day the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, these regions of Galilee, will be made glorious away by the sea for the Messiah, gracing this land with His footsteps, Galilee of the nations, of the ethnos, of the peoples. In Matthew 4, we find where the fulfillment of this very text is, begin, is initiated. In Matthew chapter 4, what does it say? Verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Christ, he withdrew, where? Into Galilee. He left Nazareth, Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17, the initiation of Christ's ministry, that's the place, here's the message. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom would culminate in the reversal of the fortunes of Naphtali and Zebulun of the whole land of Galilee. So that's why Jesus went there first, and that's why Jesus announced that His kingdom was now manifest when He says, All authority, all nations, and all I have commanded are now your duty to proclaim, and He will then ascend, and we know where He ascends, to receive His kingdom. The forever throne of David. We know where he is. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews 1. And we know what he has done. He has demonstrated his authority in fulfilling Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, by reversing the fortunes of the first to be invaded by the Assyrians, northern Galileans, and now sending them the message of the kingdom come, his kingdom, and word and deed is preached and proclaimed among them. And so he announces the fulfillment in the same place when we read his last words in the book of Matthew. 
So his authority then is affirmed not just by the power of his commission compared to the commission of the enemy, but also in the fulfillment of prophecy. The words of ancient times now, they're fulfilled right down to the T's crossed and I's dotted in his very act right up to his last words. Thirdly, under all authority given to Christ, consider this link to worship. In verse 17, when they, this is the disciples, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Pausing there, this is profound how the Bible records the true events of the gospel. Now, if, we're try, if, if what was claimed by the false commission were true, that this was a story concocted by the followers of Christ to make a new religion according to their best ideas, they wouldn't record stuff like this. Like there were those who doubted. Those who doubted indicates that there were critical thinkers who were skeptics in a way and needed to behold all of the evidence, all the empirically justifiable marks of authentic resurrection that Christ bore in his own body. And we see this happening in the Gospels. Thomas says, not to his credit, but it is amazing at the evidence that comes forth in God's providence. I will not believe until I've touched his hands and his side, as it were. And so Christ comes and he, he presents his wounds to the doubter. What does the doubter do? He says one of the most profound and powerful confessions of Christ's divinity in all of Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God worship. The doubter worship. When Christ reveals himself in word, in scar, and in deed to his followers... The once doubters see the evidence of His glory and they worship. Notice the connection to their worship and His authority. There are some that are doubting. Christ knows. And so He assures them. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Let me submit to you that you could also say, Worship therefore. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, worship me in spirit and truth. Join with those who are among the first to find my resurrected body in their tangible experience. Remember them? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. 28 verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them, these two women, and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers. Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And they did exactly this. Here's an application point. Where you consider authority vested to some degree, that compels your worship. If you don't see each and every and all authority as derivative from the authority of Christ, if there's an authority that stands by its own merits apart from Christ, that is an idol. That is something that people worship instead of Christ. When we worship Christ, it's an affirmation that in fact all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Therefore, we will be like His first disciples. We will obey God rather than man. The answer to the question, what if worldly authorities and Christ's authority clash? What do we do? It's not an easy answer to act out, but it's sure an easy answer to understand. It's easy. You obey Christ. It's clear, I should say. You obey Christ, but it's tough because it may earn you lashes beatings, and even execution. If the experience of the early apostles and the testimony of Christ is any measure, blessed are all who persecute you for my name's sake. 
You might say, well, I haven't experienced much persecution, persecution lately. Well, consider this. What is the status of the confession of Christ's lordship and authority, generally speaking, in our conception of Christianity, the faith, in our rich and prosperous nation this day? Could it be that there isn't a whole lot of persecution because so many Christians act in basic deference to the authorities? You see, the Pharisees and the scribes who conceded worldly authority to Pilate in other, in other conversations, they wouldn't say Pilate is Lord. No, we don't really believe that. We're just basically doing what we have to do. You know, the next day they went to him. They said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while well, he was still alive and so and so. They're negotiating with the authorities. But we see the great sin and evil of their words. They call Christ the imposter and they affirm Pilate as sir, O one with the authority who can rule on our behalf who can provide us security, upon whom we can make our appeal. We pray to you, Pilate, that you could help us in our need. Pilate is Sir, Christ is the imposter. Christ has claimed all authority in heaven and on earth. God forbid that his church would concede any of that ground, because when we do, we say, he is an imposter. There are authorities then and now, Pilate, scribes, Pharisees, and otherwise, quasi-religious and civil that want to say, I have legitimate authority independent of Christ. And it ought to rise up within us a profound, no, you don't. This is a message that ought to be preached from the halls of every legislature in our land. You have no authority, no legitimate authority independent of Jesus Christ. Because... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and therefore I am here to tell you that. Bow to him. Quit your idol worship. Worship him alone to the degree, to the degree that you concede authority elsewhere than Christ is the degree that you're worshiping an idol. You're ascribing greatness, influence, power, help, security, hope for the future to that entity, this program, that policy, that bill, this law, that legislator, this presidential candidate. Don't do it. All of them must remember what Psalm 2 says and what we heard this morning proclaimed in our worship text. Kings and rulers better bow and kiss the sun. The ultimate act of deference to authority in the Near East, lest they tremble and perish in the way. Anger is quickly kindled by just a little insolence, and they will be destroyed, but he will rule and reign. The magnitude of Christ's words is apparent in how he establishes by word and by event, by action. If he can defeat the grave, this man has the right to declare these things. If death can't hold him down, what ruler of this world can win an argument of sovereignty with this individual? No one. And thus, it's proven to be the case through history and today. The magnitude of Christ's last words are apparent in this phrase. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Second phrase, all nations. The magnitude of Christ's last words are apparent in this, to in this reference to nations that includes all of them. He says, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Those names, the three persons of the Godhead, 
our triune God, are the legitimate authority over all nations. No nation will thrive, no nation will be blessed, unless the triune God is their Lord, unless their experience is conformed to His truth. So we speak here in two ways as we address this text, the individual heart, but consequently, those that gather together. This message is not just for you know, an atomized individual here or there. It is a message to go forth to groups of people. Ethnos is the term in the Greek. And the goal is to make disciples. What is a disciple? You're familiar with the ter- term. A disciple is a devotee of someone. It's someone who follows someone else who identifies with that individual in a particular aspect. If you are a disciple of so-and-so in biology, you accept the premise of their thesis of their life's work and you seek to be faithful to it and to build upon it. If you are a disciple of someone in the trades, uh, like an apprenticeship or you're a journeyman, you're wiring houses or doing plumbing, you follow the practices and the the experience of the one, your employer, and you seek to follow in his stead. You're modeling your behavior, your work, and your craft after the example in front of you. On the internet, because of the way information is quickly dispersed these days, there are certain influential personalities. And they are gathering for themselves, as has been the case throughout all of history, groups of disciples around them. And it's interesting to see. The concept of discipleship never really goes away. The real question is, is who are you a disciple of? Are you an acolyte of your favorite you know, thinker over here, your favorite author over there? Are you a disciple of this news commentator, this political thinker, this philosopher, or this uh, educationer, or otherwise? These voices are all over the place. These influences and authorities are all over the place, and they're competing for your interest, competing for your discipleship. Well, the discipleship that is proclaimed and the only true discipleship that we are to champion is discipleship to Christ alone. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And as you do so, realize that those who will become disciples of Christ must repent of their discipleship to any other. All of us, by nature of your humanity, are profoundly influenced by something. Chiefly among them are sin. In this sense, we are disciples of the devil himself. And when Christ comes with his message to the individual and says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore come, follow me, be my disciple, repent and believe. It is a call to renounce your sin and your allegiance with uh, the devil and to follow Christ. Making disciples presumes the authority of Jesus. A disciple or, or one who has disciples is someone who presumes a certain amount of earned merit or influence over another individual. And in this way, we see again the link between authority and discipleship. And so Christ alone claims comprehensive right to the discipleship of all who will walk in the truth. And this includes comprehensive instruction in truth and in practice. So just like we used by way of example, the journeyman follows in, in message and instruction and in practice the example of his employer, so in message and in practice, the discipler or the disciple of Christ looks to him. And just so happens, since all authority is vested in him, our discipleship of Christ does not touch just one area like vocation. It touches every, each and every aspect 
of life and thought. This is the call. Go therefore, realizing the authority of Christ, and make disciples. We do so proclaiming the gospel and commanding repentance according to the standard of Christ and encouraging those to follow in his footsteps in all areas of life. Who is this message for? Nations, ethnos, as distinguished by an organic common ground. When the Bible uh, speaks of peoples, or ethnos, ethnicities is a similar term, it speaks of people who are bound together by a common experience and often language, certainly culture. So people who are bound together by a similar experience and culture, that would be a people group, group that could be described as a nation. Sometimes I have heard preachers, I think, wanting to obfuscate a little and avoid the, and avoid the weight of this text by saying, I'm not really here to disciple nations. What he means is ethnos here. I would reject that interpretation. I think, in fact, the call becomes even more demanding when we consider that the message isn't just to get a radio station and proclaim on you know, all the stations within the hearing of a particular geographic boundary you know, the message of the gospel. The call is even more comprehensive than that. It's to go to every ethnos or culturally defined people group and to preach the authority of Christ to them. So this would be, in our context, the Somali community in St. Cloud. It would be the Hmong community in the cities. It would be, you know, those who have something of a Norwegian heritage up here uh, in the northern part of the state. Preach the gospel to them. Recently, I heard an interesting project that some entrepreneurs and innovators are embarking upon. They call it seasteading. And those of you that might follow some of the same podcasts I do might be familiar with this idea. Entrepreneurs are thinking, well, let's start something of a prototype, independent economic zone. We'll build a big artificial island off the coast of something like a host nation. We'll be free from their regulations and we'll show them how business really thrives and how a healthy and peaceful society can really uh, be, be a shining light. Well, you and I both know that all authority from our text today in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. If you were to propose any prototype society that's going to be a light, that ethnos, if you will, needs the gospel as well. If you're making plans to establish a free economic zone off the coast of L.A., you better make plans to have preachers come and proclaim the ground of legitimate authority and the basis of how we can love one another, walk in the footsteps as Christ has declared them, realize the benefit of contract law, know the foundational principles of the Ten Commandments, Understand the relationship of God's law to a thriving economy. Only where men do not steal, do not covet, and have no other gods before the Lord do we have the basis for an economic exchange that is mutually beneficial and causes a nation to flourish. Otherwise, what happens? They're cursed in the field, they're cursed in the city, and they're cursed in their kneading bowl, and they cry out, oh, if we only had a free economic zone 12 miles off the coast, we would thrive. No. That's ultimately not the answer. The answer is Christ and His law proclaimed. This is one example of what it means to make disciples of all nations, to tell them your hope for the future is not some messianic prototype society of your design. It is the word of Christ proclaimed in His whole counsel. We go and we do this acknowledging His authority by baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The revelation of God 
in the baptism of Jesus Christ himself is recalled in this exchange. The knowledge of the Trinity is absolutely essential to the faithfulness of gospel proclamation. Understanding the tripersonhood of God, that God has revealed himself in three, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, even as we sang today, is necessary to the call to go and tell, to proclaim, to fulfill the Great Commission. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3.16, you remember what happened. First, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, the testimony of the Spirit in the baptism of Christ coming to rest upon him. Secondly, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. A testimony of God the Father proclaiming his favor over his Son. And finally, who is the recipient of these two events? It was the Son himself. Spirit, Father, and Son, Father, Son, and Spirit are here testified to in the baptism of Christ. And so in each and every legitimate Christian baptism, we testify to the triune God. If God was not triune, there could not be a Savior who could be the perfect sacrifice to take on flesh in, 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 our, in His experience as our brother the, way, or the test and then prove Himself and then to be the legitimate substitutionary sacrifice for us. Without God the Spirit, these ideas would be uh, loose concepts out here and never actualized in our heart and soul. But the Spirit, through His indwelling, somehow makes these otherwise incomprehensible mysteries real to our heart. So we will die believing the Trinity is true, even though a thousand philosophers might say, I have logical reasons to the contrary. We do not listen because our heart has a strong connection to the truth of God revealed because the Spirit has made it real to our soul. It's not merely a mental or intellectual ascent, although it is that. It's a heart connection that binds viscerally and from the inside out our fortunes, our affections, our desires, our hope for the future, our faith to the reality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we recognize in the authority of Christ revealed that this is all according to a plan predestined before time began that the Father proclaimed. And so, we see history unfolding in a certain shape as God is its author and it is His story. We see His work and progress in redemptive history unfolding before us. And so we proclaim the magnitude of Christ and His last words in making disciples and baptizing them, the, initial, the initiating ceremony into the church upon their professed faith in Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All authority, all nations, and finally, all I have commanded. Touching upon this just briefly, as it's overlapped much of what we've already said. The final verse in Matthew's account, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them, that is, all nations, to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Notice observe, teaching them to observe. First of all, what is observe? It's this obedience, it's this notion. If you look in the Greek, there is an idea of properly maintaining, spiritually guarding, and preserving something intact. But most specifically in the context of our text today, it's simply to obey, observe, obey. Teaching them to obey, to walk in what Christ has ordained and commanded. 
Paul said this was the goal of his Romans project. He says, in fact, his whole gospel project, the beginning and end of Romans, is to proclaim the faith, or the proclamation of the gospel is for the obedience of the faith among the nations. What is he doing? He's simply reiterating in his life and ministry work what uh, Jesus had already proclaimed in the Great Commission. The goal of gospel proclamation is conforming to the author- or is acknowledging the authority of Christ by repenting of your sins in the first place and then following Him as your Lord and Savior. It's following His law, His word, taking seriously His commands. We observe and obey all that God has spoken. In the notion of missions today, I wonder if we realize the weight of this. Oftentimes, we consider it a value to preserve cultures. You know, uh, you know the, our, our culture does thus and so, and that has some you know, diversity and some value to it. So we want to acknowledge that and celebrate you know, the, the rainbow spectrum of all the different ways of thinking and acting and so on and so forth. These are the overriding values of America today, multiculturalism. This is anathema to the scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ is not about cultural preservation so long as that culture doesn't affirm Him as its ultimate authority. He is all about cultural transformation, if I do say it myself, because a culture will ultimately reflect its Lord and Savior, and you better believe that our culture, as believers, ought to reflect Jesus Christ or there's something wrong. The Great Commission is not taking root and branch in our own life. And so we are called to teach the nations, and we are certainly called to walk in obedience, observing all that He has commanded. What has Christ commanded? Well, in Matthew 5, His instructions, again, in the constitution, if you will, the kingdom of God encompass all of the revealed word. Christ has said in 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, again, this is the Great Commission prefigured here, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here Christ is identifying the fruit of the Great Commission realized. The fruit springs forth into obedience to the whole counsel of God. Law, prophets, New Testament, the whole thing. Rightly understood and applied is to be something that we ponder, consider, teach, and obey. This goes all the way back to Christ's very first command. We read it in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first command. Go and teach them to observe all I have commanded you. The first thing Christ commanded was repent. And after that, everything else follows. Walk in this manner worthy of your call in the words of Paul, according to the whole counsel of God. Finally, in our text today, we have this promise. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are comforting words indeed. They foreshadow Pentecost to come. Just a few short days, the Holy Spirit will come. He will imbue, He will give, He will baptize the disciples, the followers of Christ, with the presence of the Holy Spirit that will thus continue in the hearts of all the saved, of all the redeemed, for all time to the end of the age. 
and with the abiding presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christ is with us to the end of the age. What does he refer to when he speaks of age? All the way back in Matthew 1, listen to how Matthew speaks of ages in 1.17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So you see how all of history is structured according to God's redemptive purposes and salvation. So the idea here is according to this sovereign shape of history, we hear the echoes of Matthew 1 through 7. The implication is all generations from the ascension of Christ to his second coming will be attended by the Spirit of God in his church. Praise the Lord for this hope that we have. And so we see the magnitude of Christ, or the magnitude of Christ's last words in the message of the Great Commission, all authority, all nations, all that He has commanded. In processing this today, as we have beheld these last words of Christ, may we be stirred ourselves to boldly obey, to proclaim and to walk in the words that He has spoken all through redemptive history. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power to convict and to correct, to come forth, to go forth as a two-edged sword, to divide and to discern, to call us out of sinful darkness unto marvelous light, to bring us to repentance and to faith, and to equip us to walk in a manner worthy of our call. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us so more and more of our life comes into conformity and obedience with your holy word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a passion and a desire to do this by your Spirit's indwelling, so that we may be found faithful to the command of Jesus' last words in Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.